Well, tonight is the 10th study in our study we've been working through over the last uh, several months from dust to glory, working our way through all the major themes of the Bible. And uh, they are all, all except session one are available on the podcast, by the way. So if you didn't, if you missed one or you missed some and you want to catch up, they're all on there. They're all about 30 minutes in length and you can catch up there. So we're about um, just a fifth of the way, I guess, through this. There's going to be 50 plus messages or uh, sessions in this series. And, and uh, we're trying to get an overview of the scriptures. Now tonight's going to be a little bit different because I'm going to try to pause and, and get us reoriented in what we're doing because I think sometimes um, we get into just sort of a rhythm of going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. We're just checking the box and sometimes we can sort of miss what it is that we're actually involved in here. And I want to remind you, first of all, that you know, the whole purpose of this study is to give us all a really good picture of the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation and all the things in between, we want to know what is this book really all about? What is this Bible really all about? And we want to be able to, to gain a big understanding of the whole thing. And one example would be from last week. You know, I was thinking about this uh, all throughout the week as I was preparing and getting ready for this week, and I was kind of thinking... I wonder how well we're doing at seeing the big picture here. And last week, for instance, we talked about the tabernacle. You remember we talked about from Exodus that that God gave them the tabernacle as they went out into the wilderness. And you remember that at the end of last week's session, I went to Hebrews chapter 9 and read this in verse 1, 2, and 3 from Hebrews chapter 9, where it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And then you remember, we read through that and we, we went on to see that the writer of Hebrews went on to show us how Jesus fulfilled all that was foreshadowed in the tabernacle and the sacrifices that were there and the holy place and how he entered into the holy place not made with hands, and instead of sprinkling the blood of bulls and goats on the altar, he went in with his own blood. And so we see a fulfillment of all that. And just sort of imagine how hard it would be to understand the book of Hebrews at all, but that passage in particular, if we didn't have an understanding of what had happened back in the book of Exodus. I mean, we have study Bibles, you have pastors and you have teachers to tell you, but just imagine you just had a Bible. You just had a Bible in your hand and just imagine that you only had a New Testament. I love the story that R.C. Sproul told of, of being in a group at a college one time and he was giving a talk to some college students and, and R.C. Sproul was famous. He's a great theologian. One of the things that he was famous for was that he never really carried a Bible. He always just borrowed one from somebody wherever he went. And I thought that that was kind of neat because he was so wise and, and so uh, well-versed in the Scriptures. But he said that in this particular context, somebody asked him a question about a specific uh, theme in the Scriptures. And he said, can somebody give me a Bible? He said, one of the students tossed him a Bible and he looked at it and he tossed it right back. It was just the New Testament. And he said, no. I said, can somebody give me a Bible? That's just the New Testament. And so imagine what it would be like if you only had the New Testament trying to understand things like this. Trying to understand when the writer talks about the tabernacle or the high priest or the sacrifices, all those things. It would be nearly impossible 
to really understand it. Or here's another example. This is a really easy one for us. But again, try to think as a person who didn't have the Old Testament. Or try to think as a person who, who just in this day and age had no church background, who had no understanding of the gospel or of who Jesus is or what he's done. And they went to Barnes & Noble and on a whim they bought a Bible and they decided, you know, I'm going to start in the Gospel of John. They started reading, and they get to John chapter 1, verse 29, and, and we have John the Baptist there looking up and sees Jesus coming, and he says, you remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now imagine for a moment that you have no context for that. You don't know the Old Testament. You don't know the history of the church, of Jesus, of what... Jesus done, and for us that's easy, even if we don't have a whole lot of Old Testament, we've been bathed in the language of the church. And so when we hear that, we immediately understand what it means. But imagine that you didn't have all that context. Imagine what it would be like to come to that without knowing. And so when we walked through the Passover and the theme of the Passover and the sacrifice of the Lamb and the foreshadowing of the redemptive work of Christ, that gives us context for what would happen centuries later when John would see Jesus on the, coming on the shores and he would say, Behold the Lamb. We understood that because of the context that we gained from looking through these. So we're trying to get a more complete view of Scripture in order for us to, to understand or, or a more complete view of the themes of Scripture so that we can have a better understanding of the whole of Scripture and understand our faith better. And I said tonight would be different. I want to sort of pause because I do think that before we move any further... I want to pause and, and try to sort of uh, set us in the right direction the way we're thinking about where we're going over the next couple of weeks. And we're almost done for the summer. We've got a couple more studies, but these next two, I'm particularly worried I'm going to lose you on. And then maybe when September comes around and we pick back up, you'll say, no, I remember where we left off. I'm not coming back for that. And so I want to pause here and just try to set us in the right direction. Now, how many of you, I want to ask this question, and you don't really have to answer or, or give testimony or anything, but, uh, but how many of you have ever set out at the beginning of a year or whenever and decided, this is going to be the year, I'm going to start in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to read the Bible verse by every verse until the end. I'm reading through the whole Bible this year. Just real quick, have you ever decided that? And be honest, please be honest with me for a minute. How many of you have ever had the experience where you got through Genesis and you got through Exodus, but then you got to Leviticus? I mean, seriously, you got to Leviticus and all of a sudden the Bible stopped being so exciting in a lot of ways. And for a lot of people, and you don't have to raise your hand on this one, but for a lot of people, that's the place where we stop. And we either bail out completely or we decide... I'm reading through the New Testament this year, and we skip ahead, and we start with the New Testament. But that's where we get to. We get to the book of Leviticus, and it's a real challenge once we get there. And, and even if we muscle through that, maybe we get to Numbers, and, and if you can really muster up the strength to get through that, you can get into Deuteronomy. But, but most people will struggle, really struggle, to get through the first five books of the Old Testament. And I think there's a reason for that. I, I think that there's a... a a real reason why that happens. And I think it's because when we get to Genesis and Exodus, we deal with themes that we're familiar with, themes that we're interested in, people that we're familiar with, 
and, and people that we're interested in, and there's historical narrative and miracles and all of these things. And then when we get to Leviticus, and we're introduced to the nuances of the law and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all that, all of a sudden, we're confronted with information that really makes no sense to us. In our everyday life, we just can't relate to it. And that's where people seem to bail out. And it sort of comes down to this question. What does this have to do with me? What does Leviticus 4 and 5 have to do with me? Where we start talking about this appropriate sin offerings if a priest serving at the tabernacle sins. What does that have to do with me? Or what does it have to do with me? All the... The, the, reading through Leviticus when, when we're told how to, to tell the difference between a normal rash and leprosy. What does that have to do with me? I mean, honestly, this is why we lose our, 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 our attention spans get short and we lose interest is because I think that this is the question that pops up into our minds. Whether we say it like this or not, I think in some form or another, we get to Leviticus and we get to these things and we start thinking, what does this have to do with me? And that's one of the places I want to dwell tonight is on that question and just examine that question because I think the question of what does this have to do with me is a question that has become a plague on modern Christianity. The idea that that it has to have something to do with me personally and my situation in order for it to be important to me, I think that kind of thinking has become a plague on American Christianity and Western Christianity in general. And I think we've become a a me-centered kind of people, and I think that American Christianity has become a me-centered kind of faith. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples, and you're free to disagree with me. Uh, We can discuss it at question time at the end, but just bear with me and just kind of, let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Like, for instance, number one, the seeker-sensitive movement that happened in America, and it's still happening to some sense. Most missiologists and, and people who, who pay attention to these things say that not only has the seeker-sensitive movement ended, but it sort of failed. It didn't accomplish what it set out to accomplish. But the seeker-sensitive movement began in the late 70s and really hit a full head of steam in the early 90s, and, and to some extent is still going on. And it was this idea that we started with seekers first, And you can define that in all sorts of different ways, but essentially a seeker is a person who's seeking God, doesn't know God, but seeking God, but is not necessarily willing or ready to seek out God in a place like a traditional church. So there's lots of seekers out there. And so the church, in order to reach those people that were called seekers, started to adjust the way that we did things. And so during that movement, things started happening like the design of churches started, churches were designed differently. Like the architecture of churches changed during that movement. And we can see that influence. I, I can think of some big churches around here where you can see that influence in their buildings. That the churches, if they weren't, if they didn't have a name on the front of them or a sign up front identifying them as a church, you probably couldn't identify them by their architecture as a church. So we changed the architecture, we changed the, 
symbols inside the church. Like, for instance, you could go inside of a church, and uh, if we raised the screen up there behind the screen, you would see a cross in the baptistry. There's a steeple on the church that has a cross on it. There's a big cross out front on the church facing Burntwoods Road, and there was all these symbols of Christianity. Well, the during the seeker-sensitive movement, we removed the symbols because we didn't want people to be uncomfortable with the symbols. The music changed. Much of the contemporary worship music that we have nowadays is a result of the seeker movement and, and intentionally becoming more contemporary and having music that communicated better with people and with where they're at sort of culturally. Uh, the way people dressed at church changes. Some of these things aren't bad, by the way. I mentioned Sunday that I think the way that we dress in church is just more of a reflection of our culture than it is a, a sign of disrespect or lowering reverence. You know, in the 1950s, men went out and did various things dressed in suits and jackets and ties. And when you go out and do things, how many of you ever dress up like that anymore just to go out? You know what I mean? So it's, I'm not saying that all of these things are bad, but just follow along with me. So the dress changed within the churches. The sermons changed. Or the way that sermons were, uh, sermon topics were chosen changed. And sermon topics were based uh, upon relevant issues or things that pastors and churches or teams of pastors or creative teams got together and decided that these would be things that the people who were seeking were interested in. So all these things are changing. The strategy of the church evangelistically was to go ask the community what it needed or wanted and then respond to those needs and wants by tailoring the ministries and evangelistic efforts of the church to what the community said that they wanted in the first place. So all of these things sort of created a new kind of church because in some ways it worked. And they got a lot of the seekers to come in. And they got them to come in with a very distinct strategy, which was the church is here to serve your needs, your individual needs. We want it to be comfortable for you. We want the sermons to be interesting for you. We want you to dress like you want to dress. We want the music to be the music that you want to hear. We're going to make ministries based on the answers you gave us to surveys. In a lot of ways, that worked, getting people in the doors. But what it left behind in its wake was a church culture that believed that the most important thing at the church was me. And we've all been influenced by that to some extent. You may not realize how much or, or how, but in the literature we've produced and the popular preachers and seminar speakers and the way that we do church and all of the different things we do, we've all been influenced by this. And so there's been a sort of a, a rising tide within American Christianity that, that the most important person in the church is me. And if I'm not served, then the church is failing. So we can think of it that way. Um, another really easy, low-hanging fruit is just to look at music, the way that music has changed. And now you all know me well enough to know that I'm not here to argue whether contemporary is better than traditional. I like both of them, and in fact, I think that it's wise, even in its form, for us to lean towards contemporary in, in the form, not necessarily the content, but the form. So I think that that's okay, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but, but let me give you an example that's just glaring and on the surface. Like, for instance, the most popular hymn of the 20th century, largely because of Billy Graham's influence in his crusades. You know what it was during the 20th century? 
Well, that would have been another one. How great thou art. Right. And that was made popular. It wasn't, didn't happen during his years. It happened much earlier than that. But, but you know the words to how great thou art. Right? So we, uh, I'll read some of them to you. It starts out, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe display. That's just Psalm 19. Right? God's evident in creation. He, he's there. We can see him in creation and all these things. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow with humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. And then sings my soul, you know the chorus, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou art. And there's this proclamation about the greatness of God and who God is and God's being adored. And for much of the church's history, not all of it, there's examples of bad hymns. There's exa- really bad hymns. But, but the music of the church tended to be about exalting the person of God and proclaiming the truths of the faith. Now, I look today, and this wasn't premeditated or anything. I didn't choose this song just to pick on it, but I look today at the CCLI Top 100 and what's the, the most downloaded or used, the song that's being used the most in churches right now, and it's the song Reckless Love. How many of you are familiar with that song? It's a good song. I like the song. The tune's good. I love 6-8 time. I love all that stuff. It makes me like the song. It's, it's arranged well. But listen to the words. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You've been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. Now just stop, that's verse 1. And do you already notice a difference in the tone of the one as opposed to the other? When I, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You've been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You've been so, so kind to me. In the chorus of the song, the, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I, couldn't, I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And then the bridge, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. And what's the difference in the two songs? Right. The one is focused on God, and the other is focused on me. But now, I know that in both of those, you could make an argument one way or the other, or you could argue that, the intent of the songwriter wasn't to exalt me. But nevertheless, it's becoming more difficult. And I know because I try week after week to select songs that exalt God and not people. Like I'm involved in that process. To try to select songs that don't exalt man over God. That don't focus on man over God. And I can tell you firsthand it's becoming difficult. And I think that's a result of this, this again, this rising tide that the most important person in the church and in the faith is me. That God's most interested in me. And the me-centeredness of, of American Christianity, I think, has also caused us to approach the Bible differently. It's caused us to look at the Bible differently. And so when we come to the Bible, and we come to particularly places like the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, where we all can seem to get bogged down, or themes 
in the Old Testament, I think that sometimes we get there and, and we immediately default to this. What does it have to do with me? And that's the wrong way to approach the Scriptures. Like that, that will destroy your ability to engage with the Scriptures on a meaningful way. If the first, and I'm not saying you should never ask that question. You always need to ask the question for application's sake. What does this have to do with me? But content-wise, that's not where we start. Like when we start next week, or, or, or when we get to next week, and we deal with Aaron and the priesthood, if we begin with the question, what does this have to do with me? We're going to struggle to get through that. And then the next week, when we deal with the Old Testament sacrificial system, if we ask the question, well, what does this have to do with me? We're going to struggle to get through that and, and, and have any type of, of real meaning for us. So I would suggest that we're asking the wrong question. And that the right question when we read our Bibles first is what does this have to do with God? That this is about God. This book is all about God. The Bible is not a man-centered book. How many of you were taught the little acronym when you were younger that B-I-B-L-E stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth? You ever hear that? Well, now you have, unfortunately. That's not what it's about. It's not primarily about you. This book wasn't written as an instruction manual for the human life. Now, there, there's every source of application for how to live a life that's pleasing to God contained in the Scriptures. But the, the subject of this book is not me. It's not you. The subject of this book is God. This is His Book And particularly the Old Testament, I don't know if you remember us saying this in maybe week one or two, but the Old Testament, it's been said, is like the autobiography of God. That that's where we really get to know Him intimately. Now let me show you a couple passages of Scripture real quick, and then I'll, I'll get to Gay's question or comment or, or any others. Ephesians chapter 1, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm just going to do these quickly, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And just stop right there for a moment. Regardless of what you believe about election and the doctrine of election and all those things, just stop right there for a moment. I think that we can all agree that it's explicit that the process or, or, or the, the idea that God would create and eventually create man and that man would fall and that God would eventually redeem these people, the world, all of this, all of that took place in the consciousness of God before the foundation of the world. Can we all agree on that? Regardless of how that plays out, we know that, that God has been dealing with these things, the redemption of the world, before the world was even created, that He, or in order that, because this is the purpose, that He should be holy and blame, or that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So here's the redemption of mankind. He predestined us for adoption to Himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ. So this is just a short explanation of what these things before the foundation of the world are. He predestined that we should be adopted in in Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, for what? Or why? To the praise of his glorious grace. So God did this thing so that in the redemption of his creation, in the end, he would receive all the praise and all the glory, all the glory because of the display of his grace towards mankind. That's an amazing thought. God wants all the glory. God does it all for himself. And we are beneficiaries of it. Now in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Verse 8. And by the way, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are just a running exposition of the whole idea that God created the world, mankind, everything in it, and is redeeming the world for the sole purpose of displaying His glory. That's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Listen to these words in verse 8, 9, and 10. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's an explicit purpose statement of why God has done what He's done through Christ and for us. And why has He done it? It's not because we're so immensely valuable that He just couldn't stand to not redeem us. It's because He did it all to display His manifold wisdom in all of creation. It's always been, always from first to last, about Him. Uh, Luke chapter 24, you probably don't even need to turn there. You're so familiar with this. But in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus, comes alongside post-resurrection, and there are two disciples walking, talking. One of them named Cleopas comes alongside him. Verse 18, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem speaking to Jesus who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And he said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and worked before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went out to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him we did not see. So they're recounting all the events. These are all the things that have happened. He says, oh, you foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? And verse 27. And beginning with Moses. This is the really critical part for us. Because when we're studying the themes of the first five books of the Old Testament. When Luke says he began with Moses. 
What he's saying there is he began with the first five books of the Old Testament and all the prophets, and he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So even beginning in Genesis and running throughout all the scriptures that they had in those days, the subject of the scriptures was not the people, It wasn't a man like us. It was God and His Christ and the redeeming work that He was doing with His creation. God is the subject of all of this. And so when we're studying these things, we need to be reminded that the appropriate question for us to begin with, when we gather next week and we look at Aaron and the priesthood, the ultimate question is not, what does this have to do with me? The ultimate question is, what does this have to do with God? And how does this teach us about him? And remember this, and then I'm going to allow time for questions for a couple minutes. Remember that God is not man-centered. God is not man-centered. Now, think of it this way. Phil, if you are Phil-centered, if you are man-centered, then you have sinned against God, correct? Why would we say that if, if I'm man-centered, if individually you and I are centered on ourselves, that's a sin? Why do we say that's a sin? Because if, if, if the highest thing in our life is ourselves or any other person, then we have, by definition, become idolaters, right? Because the only appropriate person who deserves the highest place is God himself. So to say that God is man-centered would then be saying that God himself is an idolater because God only occupies the place of God. God is the most God-centered person in the universe, and he can't be any other way. 